0: so there is this um, very interesting guy named Kevin Kelly that I ran across in a couple of interviews. Um, in recent years, he's kind of a polymath, do you know what a polymath is? Somebody who's like wicked smart and, you know, knows a lot about a lot. Um, he was kind of involved in like inventing the internet and some other things, even though if you look at him, you'd think he was Amish. Anyway. Um, so, really interesting guy. So he writes in this little book called Excellent Advice for Living, which Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. On my 68th birthday, I decided to give my ad- young adult children some advice. I'm not a frequent advice giver, but soon I was able to write down 68 bits. 68th birthday, everybody awake? 68 bits, Okay. To my surprise, I had more to say than I thought. For the next several years, I wrote down a batch of advice on my birthday, and I shared it with my family and friends. They wanted more. I kept going, and on and on, and here's a book. So I actually ran across, like, one of these kind of posts, like a blog post of 68, and then I read another one a few years later, and then I saw that it was a book, and so I got the book. So let me give you a few of his bits of advice. Ready? You don't have to attend every argument you are invited to. A great way to understand yourself is to seriously reflect on everything you find irritating in others. Habit is far more dependable than inspiration. Make progress by making habits. Don't focus on getting into shape. Focus on becoming the kind of person who never misses a workout. Just a couple more. The purpose of a habit is to remove the action from self-negotiation. You no longer expend energy deciding whether to do it. You just do it. Good habits can range from telling the truth to flossing. Before you are old, attend as many funerals as you can bear and listen. Nobody talks about the departed's achievements. The only thing people will remember is what kind of person you were while you were achieving. And then outlaw the word you during domestic arguments. Okay, that's enough. So, why do I read those? Um, You didn't come to church to—I mean, you can pick up this book on your own, right? So, some weeks back, if you were here, I made the point in a sermon that the gospel of Jesus Christ is news, not advice. So, the world is filled— with gurus and experts and influencers and life coaches and personal trainers and therapists and advisors and consultants and on and on, and they have lots of advice for you. And a lot of it might be good. That all is pretty good advice, right? A lot of it might be bad. There's plenty of bad advice out there. But it's still advice. How to live longer, how to live better, how to invest wisely, how to spend your time, how to sleep better, how to say no, how to eat better, how to exercise better, and on and on and on. And there are a lot of religions that function on the same level. You need to do more of this and less of that, and if you do this and that and the other thing, then you stand a greater chance of being blessed by the deity or attaining to the divine. And Christianity is not like that. Yes, there are a lot of commands in the Bible, and we can't overswing and act like grace is at odds with obedience to Jesus, okay? Not at all. But the difference with Christianity is that done, it is finished, leads to do, not the other way around. We obey Jesus because he's already done what's necessary for reconciliation with God, peace with God. He atoned for our sins, he said, it is finished. Done is what makes it possible. For us to be reconciled to God, right with God, by his grace, as a gift. And then, because we've been saved, we do. We trust and obey. Okay? We don't have to do anything to atone for our sins. We can't. But they've all been paid for. So we don't have to do this or that or avoid this or that in order to get right with God. That's what Jesus did Okay, so at the heart of the Christian faith is news, good news. It's why the announcement from the angels in Luke 2, remember with the shepherds keeping watch um, over their flocks by night, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That is news Something has happened and it changes everything. Okay. So why am I bringing all this up again this morning? Because if the gospel is news, then we, I'm speaking about Christians, and even if you're not a Christian, you need to know what the real gospel is. We need to know it well if we're going to tell it faithfully. So listen, if you're a Christian, you are a witness to what Christ has done. So in a sense, we are the middlemen, the middle women. Okay? So we're not the ones with whom the news originates. Like we can't tamper with it or edit it or leave out key pieces, especially if there are pieces that don't that we don't like or that our society by and large chafes at. Like, so here, if you had a FedEx or UPS delivery person who opened some of your boxes and removed some items because he, the driver, didn't think that you needed them, you'd be like, whoa there, buddy. You know, like, not your call to make, thank you very much. We are in the same position when it comes to the news of the gospel. We've got to know this news so that we can faithfully witness, testify to this news. And Acts 2, Peter's sermon in Acts 2 has much to teach us, okay? So we are in a series through the book of Acts, um, taking it kind of a section at a time, and we are in chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 14 to 41 this morning. So while Peter's, like just to give you a little orientation here and a little bit of review, so while Peter's first sermon is a great model and example for us, and we're going to consider that more in a minute. We first have to recognize that Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, is an unrepeatable turning point in God's story of redemption, okay? It's the day that the Spirit was poured out on the people of God, establishing the new covenant, the new covenant community, okay? We read about this in Ezekiel 36, Um, It was foretold, it was prophesied that this was going to happen, and Pentecost is the day when this actually began to happen. So Ezekiel 36, 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone, like a cold, dead heart toward God, and give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart that beats after God, that wants to know God. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We also read of this in Jeremiah 31. We'll pass over that passage, but you can look at it later, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. That's where we have the language of the New Covenant. Um, So here at Pentecost, the New Covenant community begins. And Peter's sermon is also, in addition to being this kind of, this is a one-off, unrepeatable event, Peter's sermon is also a call to us today to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And, Thirdly, Peter's sermon is a model for us as we seek to be faithful messengers, witnesses, middlemen, middlewomen (laughs) of the the good news of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who is the only Savior. Okay, so Acts 2, if you're not there, go ahead and turn there. Um, We're going to be reading the passage just as we walk through it um, this morning, but if you are using the Pew Bible, don't have a Bible, you can find one in the pew in front of you, and you can find our passage on page um, 910. 910. Alright, so the beginning of chapter 2, when the Spirit descended on the disciples, there were 120 men and women who were praying and waiting for the promise of the Father, like Jesus had said, um, for, the, for the power from on high that Jesus had promised. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues so that people from all over the known world who were there listening are hearing these people tell of the mighty works of God in their own language. They're like, what is going on here? And Eugene actually walked through this last Sunday, verses 1 to 13. Now look at 2.12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They're filled with new wine. Okay, so Peter, kind of as a representative of the apostles, is going to stand up and respond. And we are going to learn that the Spirit poured out at Pentecost. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is the Lord and Messiah who calls all peoples to repent and declare allegiance to him while there is still time. Okay? That's kind of the main idea. So point number one in the outline, what does this mean? Look at verse 14. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Does that ring any bells? Jerusalem and Judea. Remember chapter one, verse eight, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So it's happening let this be known to you and give ear to my words for these people are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day it's kind of funny that peter answered that way it's only 9 a.m come on like maybe a little bit of good humored response there perhaps a little cheeky i don't know and then he gets serious but this is what was uttered through the prophet joel here is what this means you're asking what this means i'm going to tell you what this means Verse 17, he quotes the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this is Joel 2. He's quoting Joel 2. What's going on in Joel 2? Well, in the book of Joel, it's a short little minor prophet, minor just in length, okay, toward the end of the Old Testament, and Joel is writing in a context where the people of God, so-called, have been rebellious, and Joel, as the prophet of God, has to announce that judgment is coming, and he's warned the people of the judgment to come. The day of the Lord is coming, And the day of the Lord, for those who are rebelling against him, sticking their fingers in their ears, that's going to be a terrible day of judgment. And that day is quickly approaching. And for us, I mean, final judgment is coming. We don't know when. But God is not indifferent to evil and sin. The righteous wrath of God against sinners is just Not hair trigger, you know, out of control anger. It's righteous anger. It is terrifying. Like it is a fearful thing. Like it says in Hebrews, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So seek salvation from the Lord before that day dawns, before it's too late. That's kind of the point in Joel 2. So This is the section that Peter is referring to. There is a hopeful note, even in the midst of the the warnings against judgment in Joel's prophecy, there's this hopeful note of mercy that would be a great relief to those who are aware of their sin and their inability to save themselves. In the face of coming judgment, when the Spirit is poured out, Joel writes, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter's saying, That day's here. The Spirit is being poured out. The wind and the fire. Hearing the mighty works of God in your own language. This, you know, the speaking in tongues of these people, the tongues of fire and all the wind and all of that, it's Joel 2 fulfilled. Listen, like in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the Spirit was only poured out on prophets, other leaders, usually for a particular task, like being a king or a a prophet, like I mentioned. The Spirit could actually be taken away. Remember Saul? The Spirit was taken away from Saul, and then David was anointed. And you remember when David committed that grievous sin against Bathsheba and Uriah and so forth, and he repents in Psalm 51? What's one of his requests? Take not your spirit from me. He didn't want to end up like Saul. But in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, all God's people have the Spirit poured out on them. It's the democratization of the Spirit. Like, remember the tongues of fire last week? You know, symbolizing the presence of God, like Eugene mentioned, dividing and resting on each of them. Okay, that signifies like in the new covenant that God will dwell not on a mountain like Mount Sinai with fire and smoke or in the tabernacle or in the temple, but in his individual people and in his church. He's present with his people. He dwells within his people. And so all in the new covenant community will know the Lord. So all can prophesy. Okay, prophesy like, okay, we're not going to get into the weeds on that this week. It'll come up again in the book of Acts. But just at this point, John Stott provides a helpful word here. If in essence, prophecy is God speaking, right, through the mouth of the prophet, God making himself known by his word, then certainly the Old Testament expectation— was that in New Covenant days, the knowledge of God would be universal. And the New Testament authors declare that this has been fulfilled through Christ. In this sense, all God's people are now prophets, just as all are also priests and kings. Remember royal priesthood in First Peter? Because we know him, we must make him known. So I, I don't know if you've ever noticed or read in the book of Numbers, kind of an obscure passage, but in Numbers eleven there's an interesting thing that happens which, you know, points at what we see here. Numbers eleven sixteen, the Lord said to Moses, gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you, and I will come down. And talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So Moses does this, verse 25. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it. In other words, they weren't like, Lifetime prophets like vocational prophets, but when the spirit fell they prophesied kind of like what's going on in Acts 2 Keep reading Numbers eleven twenty-six. 26 now two men remained in the camp one named Eldad and the other named Medad and the spirit rested on them and Were uh, they were among those registered but they had not gone out to the tent and so they prophesied in the camp And a young man ran and told Moses Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. It would be great if everybody was proclaiming the word of God. So it actually seems that God intends his people to all be prophets. Not in the Old Testament sense, like Isaiah or Jeremiah, or certainly we're not creating scripture. The canon is closed. But proclaiming, communicating the truth of God. Absolutely. Now look at verse 21. And it shall come to pass, this is back in Acts 2. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Question. In Joel, who's the Lord? It's Yahweh. Who's the Lord in Peter's sermon? Let's read on and find out. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Do you remember verse 19? Just let your eyes flick up there for a second. When... In the last days, God pours out his spirit. Verse 19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Jesus certainly did many signs and wonders, and there were some crazy things that happened at his death as well, right? Rocks splitting and darkness at noon and all of that. So Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There's a great summary of sovereignty and responsibility. God is totally sovereign and planned all of this. And those who crucified and killed Jesus are guilty God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. If the wages of sin is death, if the sting of death is sin, then Jesus paying for sin means that death no longer has claim on him. The grave can't hold him. So he was raised from the dead. Then he quotes Psalm 16. That's what Cher Lee read just a few minutes ago. For David says concerning him, Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the past of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So Peter remembers Psalm 16. And then he reasons from the scripture, from Psalm 16, to his conclusion. Probably a lot like, remember when Jesus walked with those two men on the road to Emmaus? And he's pointing out in the Old Testament all these things that pointed to him and that he fulfilled. So verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried... And his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, his body saw corruption. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, that was promised in 2 Samuel 7, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. In other words, Psalm 16 can't all totally apply to King David. So who is he talking about? Well, he's ultimately talking about Jesus. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah. That he was not abandoned to the grave, to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God, raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We saw, we touched the nail prints in his hand and the the scar in his side. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, this is quoting Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And now for the climax and conclusion, verse 36, let all the house of Israel See, the witnessing starts in Jerusalem and Judea. So let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. He is the King of kings. He is the Messiah. He is Yahweh in the flesh, this Jesus whom you crucified. So you got to know this for certain. Remember, so Luke wrote both the Gospel according to Luke and Acts, Right? Remember how Luke starts? Hey, Theophilus, I've really, you know, taken a careful study of all of this. I want you to be certain of the things that have happened. It's the same language here, same wording. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, Messiah. So this isn't drunken folly. This is the promise of the last days being fulfilled. Like, the end has begun. Joel 2 has been fulfilled. Signs and wonders of Joel 2, they they were done in the life of Jesus. They were seen at his death. They're happening right now. Signs and wonders in the Bible alludes back to the Exodus. That's actually where it's most frequently used in the Bible. So, God bore his mighty arm to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt, right? So why does he use the language of signs and wonders with Jesus' death, life and death and resurrection? Well, because Jesus came to accomplish a second exodus, a greater exodus deliverance. In the first exodus, God judged the enemies, Egypt, and delivered his people signs and wonders. In the greater Exodus, God actually poured out his judgment that you and I deserve on his son. That we, the enemies of God, because of our sin, might be delivered from guilt and judgment that we deserve. Like slavery to sin and its effects. So, Joel 2.32, the Lord is Yahweh. And here, it is clearly Jesus. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. Joel 2 fulfillment only comes because of the work of Christ who from his exalted place at the Father's right hand pours out the Spirit to make to begin to make this new covenant people. So the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost. It means that Jesus is the Lord. He is the Messiah who calls all people to repent and declare allegiance to him while there is still time. So in answer to their question, what does this mean? First, it means that Joel 2 is fulfilled, outpouring the Spirit that was promised. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who is this Lord? The second passage that Peter quotes, um, Psalm 16 the crucified, raised, ascended, and exalted Lord and Christ. Everyone who calls on Jesus' name shall be saved. Now, if we get into the shoes of Peter's audience here, you realize that they've got to be like really starting to feel the weight of this. Like this is all a huge problem. This Jesus, whom God has made both Lord and Christ, he's the one that we the Jews of Jerusalem and Judea had crucified. Uh Uh-oh. Like, we were terribly wrong. And so they cry out, point number two, what shall we do? Verses 37 to 41. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise isn't for people who do, do, do and get it all right and then they can get in. Peter would be exhibit A, right? He's denied Jesus three times and Jesus restores him and now he's speaking for him. So they were cut to the heart. They're conscience stricken. They're convicted of their sins. What what can we do? Well, Joel 2 is being fulfilled. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Or to put it in other terms, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized, 238. You remember when John the Baptist, you know, had people get baptized? Why was he baptizing them? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is here. God's coming. You need to get ready. The kingdom is at hand. Respond. Step over the line. You've got to respond. A non-response is actually a response. It's rejection. Whose side are you on? There's only two options. With Jesus, against him. Now, Obviously, we aren't directly guilty for the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth like these Jews were in Jerusalem and Judea, right? Or are we? So sometimes we sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love. Listen to the words. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch like me, like us, his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away. He was forsaken so that we wouldn't be forsaken. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin, your sin, upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. So we all should be cut to the heart and cry out, what shall we do? And most, maybe, of us have done that. Praise God for his grace. We're saved by grace, through faith. It's not of ourselves. We don't have anything to boast in except the one who saved us. Verse 40 and 41, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. (laughs) So save yourselves from this corrupt generation. This isn't just individual private conversion, but an identification with a whole new community. So conversion is a change of allegiance. Repent, turn away from a previous way of life, like whether it's, you know, you trying to just do your own thing or DIY righteousness, self-righteousness, like I can do it in my own strength and be good enough. No, you turn from that because there's only one who can save and you trust in Jesus. And when you're baptized, you go public with what's happened in here. But if we are ashamed of him, ashamed to do that, then we haven't gone all in. So remember what Jesus said in Mark 8, like, if anyone wants to follow me, must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me if you want to be my disciple. And then he ends that section by saying, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Who are you going to align with Where is your allegiance? Where is your heart? So save yourselves from this crooked generation is, we don't love this world and want to fit in with everybody. We have a new covenant community. A new community by his grace. It doesn't mean that we hunker down and like hide from the world and stick our heads in the sand, no. We are not of the world. We're in the world for the world. To point them to Jesus and be faithful witnesses. So what does this mean? Peter's sermon both explains something. What does this mean? The coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. Like, why are you people speaking in all these different tongues? What's going on? What does this mean? He explained that from Joel 2 and Psalm 16 and his sermon accomplished something, because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, first for the Jew and also for the Greek, and 3,000 people were converted that morning, or that day. I guess it was morning, 9 a.m., right? They're not drunk. Okay. Well, what about us? What shall we do? Three concluding words for us as takeaways, okay, before we... join together and participate in the table first off for any of you who have not yet like taken sides with jesus have you repented and called on the name of the lord jesus to be saved and if so have you been baptized like going public with that faith if not why not Are there questions or doubts that are getting in the way? Are you actively pressing into those? Certainly there's oftentimes, anytime you take something seriously, there's gonna be wrestling and struggle and doubts and questions. Good, let's press into them. And if you need help doing that, I'm certainly willing to help. And there's others, brothers and sisters, that would be more than willing to help. There's good resources available. So press into those things so that you can go all in with Jesus? Or is there apathy? Is there, I'll get around to it later. Seek the Lord while he may be found. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Second word. We all should learn from the clarity of Peter's sermon and the components of Peter's gospel proclamation, his witness, okay? So just look at his sermon and see what is included. And this is not to say that every sermon has to, every, every time you share the gospel, it has to sound exactly the same. Not at all. In fact, we're gonna see, very interestingly, in the book of Acts, when the audience changes, the manner in which whoever's preaching preaches the gospel, they start in a different place. So Acts 2, Peter goes to the Old Testament because that's what the Jews knew and they believed the Old Testament. In Acts 17, Paul is preaching in Athens, he's not going to go to the Old Testament. He starts back to establish monotheism. He's quoting poets that they would have read. Okay? But they still get to Christ and the call to repentance. Okay? So, just really quickly, he spoke of Jesus' life and ministry, verse 22. He spoke of his death on the cross, verse 23. He spoke of Jesus' resurrection. Verses 24 to 32. And now exalted at the Father's right hand, He's King of kings and Lord of lords, and He poured out the Spirit, forgiveness of sins, these beautiful gospel promises. The Spirit is given to all who repent and believe and are baptized. Or to note the pattern in an even simpler outline, He answered their question, He told them about Jesus, life, death, resurrection, and He called for response. That's a helpful outline. We could learn from him. I think we can certainly say that we can't preach the gospel without preaching Christ. We can't share the gospel with somebody without getting to Jesus. Like sometimes I think as Christians we can vaguely refer to God and kind of congratulate ourselves for sharing the gospel with somebody. And we can't always say everything in every conversation. And sometimes you're sowing some seeds that will maybe give you an opportunity. Or, you know, you say something here and it opens a door later on. But sometimes we can just be so vague. We need to be clear. We need to know what the gospel is so that we can actually communicate it clearly. Here, the the Spirit fills Peter, and what happens? He talks about Jesus, and he does it clearly and directly. The gospel includes events, Remember, this is news. It includes promises, forgiveness of sins and gift of the Spirit, freedom from guilt and shame and selfishness and self righteousness and all of that. But the gospel also includes, ready, conditions. It is by free grace, but you must repent. You must repent and believe. And the outward sign that you have repented and believed is called baptism. You must call on the Lord to be saved. So listen, you and me, we are middlemen and middlewomen. Middlewomen sounds weird, sorry. It just applies to all of us, okay. We have no right to leave out key parts of the gospel. We should study the gospel. We should know the gospel so that we can share the gospel clearly. Third word. And this is just, again, to draw attention to this. I've kind of said it a couple times Quickly, but note that the Spirit leads us to Jesus and to speak of Jesus. You're actually going to see this pattern. It happens in the Gospel of Luke. It also really happens in the book of Acts. People get filled with the Spirit, and they talk about Jesus. So interestingly, at Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit, Peter doesn't focus on the Spirit. The Spirit is poured out so that everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. The sermon is focused on Christ. The Spirit is given so that we might witness to Christ. The gospel is news, not advice. And that actually changes everything. Let me just give an illustration that will point to some of the ways that it changes everything before we gather at the table here. So I've used a similar story to this before, but it was just kind of a hypothetical and then somebody, Phil, I think this was you, that sent me this story, um, because what I had shared as an illustration, as a hypothetical, like imagine that you had POWs in a war, and they had a hidden radio, and they found out that, well, actually that happened. Is that right? Was it you? Thank you. Okay, so if you appreciate this, you can thank Phil. Um, So it actually happened. So some guy named Ray Baki. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name right, but I looked him up. He's He was a a pastor and professor of um, missiology. He told a story that happened during World War II. He wrote, I knew an old Glasgow professor named MacDonald, who along with a Scottish chaplain had bailed out of an airplane behind German lines. They were put in a prison camp. A high wire fence separated the Americans from the British and the Germans made it next to impossible for the two sides to communicate. MacDonald was put in the American barracks and the chaplain was housed with the Brits. Every day, the two men would meet at the fence and exchange a greeting. Unknown to the guards, the Americans had a little homemade radio and were able to get news from the outside, something more precious than food in a POW camp. Every day, McDonald would take a headline or two to the fence and share it with the chaplain in the ancient Gaelic language, indecipherable to the Germans. One day, news came over the little radio that the German high command had surrendered and the war was over. MacDonald took the news to his friend, then stood and watched him disappear into the British barracks. A moment later, a roar of celebration came from the barracks. Life in that camp was transformed. Men walked around singing and shouting waving at the guards, even laughing at the dogs. When the German guards finally heard the news, three nights later, they fled into the dark, leaving the gates unlocked. The next morning, those Brits and Americans walked out as free men. Yet they had truly been set free three days earlier by the news that the war was over. The gospel is news, brothers and sisters, not advice, and that changes everything, and it should shape the way that we share what Christ has done while there is still time.